Drugs. Rights. Quality of life. Recovery. Harm reduction. Advocacy. Policy. Treatment. Stigma. Drugs Uncut. The Scottish Drugs Forum Podcast. Hi there and welcome to Drugs Uncut, the Scottish Drugs Forum podcast which is an informal yet informed space for conversation around drug related issues in Scotland. My name's Andy Coffey and I'm joined by Kirsten Horsborough, Austin Smith and our other colleague Jason Wallace. Welcome Jason, welcome to Drugs Uncut. We're very happy to have Jason here. Jason used to be my colleague working on the National Naloxone programme and I should also say apologies for my choked up voice. I swear it's living in this city, my countryside lungs are not coping well with the situation here so um, yeah so hopefully Hopefully, Andy, you can edit out any sniffing uh, throughout the podcast. Um, but yeah, Jason and I work quite closely on the Naloxone programme, so um, it's great to feel like we have our little partnership back again for the podcast. We did a few Facebook Lives and stuff and sort of tested the water. We, um, in fact, at one point, and this probably won't make any sense to people out with the UK, but somebody called us... Um, the Philip and Holly of Scottish Drugs Forum. So if you're in the UK, you'll probably know what that means. But <laughs> Now, you might recognise Jason from being the official voice of Drugs Uncut. Uh, from the very, very start there, you'll have heard him introduce, uh, introduce the podcast. So how about, Jason, you introduce yourself? So uh, I'm the Senior Development Officer in the Volunteer and Engagement Team uh, in the SDF. Yeah, and I my connection with Jason's work is that a long a very long time ago, which is nearly twenty years ago, I was recruited by Scottish Drugs Forum when I was initially here to do that user involvement work, which is very much part of the way we do uh, empower people or hear the voice of people who have lived experience. And so, on the topic of empowering people, that's what our uh, our the subject of our conversation is going to be today, empowering people who use drugs or have experience of, of using substances. Um, so there's often a drive to involve people uh, with lived experience uh, within the decision-making processes, yet there isn't often the same enthusiasm to, to include people who are currently using drugs. Um, can you maybe explain why at national and service level we don't always include the people whom it's about? I mean, what, what, what's that about? There's a, there is a truth in that. I suppose the, the peer research thing came about precisely to address that issue. So traditionally what happened was that we asked people to conform to the structures that we had for involving other interest, stake, interest groups or stakeholders or whatever, which was to attend meetings or take part in exercises of various kinds. And all of that is based on a notion of a certain kind of, it's a, a kind of work environment almost a business environment, if you like. So that's the way health boards work, for instance. So they say, OK, how can we get lived experience around the table? Um, and the peer research was a notion that we could get, reach out to people who weren't sitting around the table uh, and find out their experiences and then take that in some kind of, on a research basis as, as uh, something that was uh, processed and then presented as, you know, we interviewed 100 people and so-and-so percentage said X or Y. And that that does get round the problem of not being able to take 100 people around the table and not being able to take 100 people who might not turn up for a meeting at 2 o'clock every second month or whatever. Um, so that's there's the mechanics thing. That was always used as an excuse. But I think there's also an issue around stigma, frankly, fear about including people how might that be done? What, how might those people behave? Will they conform to our social norms? Will they be angry? Will they make suggestions that are unreasonable? So I think I think that's the big the big barrier is just people's perception of what that would be like. Yeah, I think I think from my experience, services often find it easier to engage with people who maybe they think are, uh, you know, more uh, stable or, um, you know. I, I think where I struggle with it is, you know, so I, my background's in nursing. And uh, I've been out of frontline nursing now for uh, seven, eight years. Um, so I wouldn't expect to be representing frontline nurses if I was on any type of forum. Um, because I've been out of it for quite a long time, I would expect there to be um, somebody who is actively in that role as a frontline nurse there representing the issues. 
Um, and that's not to say that I wouldn't have anything valuable to contribute at that type of meeting, but I would certainly be also thinking that we would have somebody there who was having that direct experience right there at the time. And I feel the same about how we involve people who use drugs. So um, we have valuable contributions from people who have had that experience in the past, um, and that's really welcome and absolutely necessary but not at the expense of people who are actually experiencing the issues right there and then. So we need to have much more active involvement of people who are right in the midst of experiencing drug problems and how their ex- experience of um, how, how their lives are affected and the services that they are um, accessing has an impact on that. So I think we, we can't afford not to involve people who are actively right in the midst of having those problems. I don't know what you think about it. Absolutely. So a lot of the times we're engaging people, it's a it's our own service, provision service, delivery, future developments, and it is never the people who are currently in the service who are have just left the service. And and I believe one of the reasons for that is as Austin mentioned, there's a worry about how do you manage that group who are currently still taking drugs. Because the safer bet is to get the individual who's stabilised, who has been abstinent for a couple of years. That's the safe option, as Kirsten said there. It's not that they don't have anything to contribute, but how valuable is um, their stuff when they've known maybe been in service for three, four, five years? That doesn't reflect the current need of the client here and now. And we all sorry, Andrew. No, I'm just saying we all know how fast the, the drugs field changes, um, especially with with different substance use trends and 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 levels of homelessness have been increasing recently. Um, so obviously, as as everyone's saying, you know, someone who who has their their past experiences obviously have have their own um, experiences to bring, which are valuable. Um, but if we're wanting to find out exactly what's going on right now, we need to be speaking to people who are experiencing those issues right now as well. Yeah, well, there's new issues. And the example I would use is, sorry, it's a Glasgow example, but it'll be understood by people outside Glasgow clearly, is the HIV outbreak. So there's been a theoretical risk, if you like, uh, for 20 years that you've got a risk if you're sharing injecting equipment, you've got a risk of a bloodborne virus infection. But in terms of HIV, the chances of that have been quite remote and it hasn't been part of people's lived experience. It's not a fear of contracting HIV, just hasn't been there for people until the HIV outbreak in Glasgow. When you have people who now and in the last few years have been injecting in no circumstances, knowing that they're taking that risk. How do you react to that emotionally and how do you moderate or not moderate your behaviour? Uh, around your injecting practice in the light of that is only known by people who are using in Glasgow at the moment uh, where that pro- that issue has that profile. So asking other people is just like a, a, it's just a theoretical question rather than real lived experience. Can I just also say about this language about lived and living experience? So I'm not for a minute suggesting that this might be the opinion of the organisation. It's me just throwing out my thoughts on it. Um, But I struggle using that language and I don't know if I'm maybe being a bit pedantic about it, but I I, I never say it. Um, So when I'm, you know, talking uh, at conferences or when I'm delivering training or facilitating our development days that we've been doing looking at drug death prevention strategies, you'll never hear me talking about people with lived experience or people with living experience. And there's just something about that terminology that makes me a bit uncomfortable. So I tend to always talk about... um, people who use drugs, people who inject drugs, um, people who've got a history of drug use. And I guess if I was terming it all together, I would say um, people who have experience of drug use. And that might be somebody who's currently using or somebody who used 10 years ago. Um, So I don't know. I know this is the terminology that's used widely now. Um, I don't know what other people think about it, but for me, uh, there's just something that's a bit uncomfortable about the language, and and I guess maybe it's nitpicking a wee bit, and we get really focused on language and stuff. And does it? I just think it matters. Language always matters, and absolutely, it's look. This is a language that's familiar, and it comes through the government and organisations and stuff. It's certainly no my experience that individuals. Uh, who use drugs refer to themselves in this manner. Mm. And I've always been uncomfortable with 
especially when we speak about lived and living experience. As much as it might not be said, there's a subtle hint there that the living experience is referring to the people we're still actively using. And it's just another layer of stigma and separating individuals, defining individuals as here's the individuals who are still actively using, but their lived experience is now moved on. So they'll be the stable or like maybe abstinent. Absolutely. But when you just chat to the boys and lassies uh, who are still actively using or stable or moved on. These individuals don't refer to themselves as I've got living experience or I have a lived experience. It's a language that government and organisations and stuff use but the language thing is definitely important because the minute you identify somebody as something else you stigmatise them. If they want to identify themselves as that, that's fine. But the minute you say they've got lived experience or living experience, you've stigmatised them and put them in a box of what your perception yeah. of that is. And that differentiation is definitely there. I mean, it, and it's almost unthought of. And it, you know, if people want to think actively, think about this and engage with the issue. And and justify it. It can it can perhaps be justified, but there's an implication that always people who have lived experience will have had time to, for mature reflection on situations they were in in the past, and will give you a more enlightened and considered opinion than somebody you know who's and about that at the moment and very much that, that's their day to day life at the moment. And the other thing I would say, going back to you know the uses of it, is that. Uh, and that this applies to all of this work, this work is that we shouldn't just presume that people who we might describe as having experience uh, uh, of having a drug problem um, have a universal experience. So sometimes for some questions, the substance matters or other aspects of the, the personal characteristics or, whatever, or the fact that people are men or women might matter. But it depends on the question people have been asked or the, the subject they're engaging on. And I think that's often lost altogether. Uh, you know, I, I, and yet there might be some situations or some circumstances which are almost universal. So if you have a, a dependency in a substance, you have an experience of waking up in the morning and that being your priority and thinking, I've got to deal with that priority now before I deal with other things that I might of otherwise prioritised. That's a universal experience no matter what the substance is. Um, but as soon as you get into anything more precise or, or, or involved in that, actually all of that stuff matters. So it's about who's involved and who they're speaking on behalf of and how much is a personal experience and how much their personal experience is relevant. All of those th- issues, people just are, are covering with this blanket term, well I've spoken to somebody with lived experience and just presume that, you know, that that's relevant. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's the issue, and, and we definitely have done a lot of work here, like focus groups on particular subjects with people who are still using. I mean, mm-hmm. I remember some of the stuff that we've done on, um, like, on drug consumption rooms and heroin-assisted treatment and getting people in and getting their actual thoughts. In fact, I seem to remember you out in the street yeah. <laughs> going looking for people um, just before those meetings and getting people in to, to chat with them. Um, but we had... Um, so when just going back to... Um, people who are actually using drugs and people who have had a history of drug use. This was something that we found quite relevant when we were trying to pull together naloxone peer groups. Mm-hmm. Um, so Jason and I were working obviously on this and Jason took a lead on uh, training and supporting groups of peers to deliver naloxone interventions. Um, and because we are not like a service delivery uh, type organisation, we were heavily reliant on local services identifying people that would be want to be involved in the project. And you know, um, you know, hundred percent of the time, basically, it was people who were no longer you know kind of using a lot of drugs, or there were maybe there were maybe a lot of people that were still on prescriptions and stuff, but not necessarily um, still using a lot of street drugs. So um, that was quite a different. Uh, feel because we were also keen to really involve people who were still actively using not to take away anything for the work that the peers in Glasgow have done because they were phenomenal in the work that they did but why do you think that was such a challenge for services to look at involving people who were actually still using? Probably because the individuals that we would have liked to have targeted were probably the individuals who were excluded for their services 
and they never really had good relationships with, with the, the services. And there's probably a wee bit a stigma where because the profile of the National Naloxone stuff, especially the, the programme was so high that it was getting used as a bit of a reward kind of thing to people. So you had to be doing okay, no using drugs in order for us to choose you to be involved, whereas the people who weren't doing that great and stuff were excluded for it for some of the reasons that they just didn't have a relationship. And um, there's that thing where there's this m misconception that if you're still using drugs, you wouldn't be un able to understand the information, retain it, or articulate it to your peers, which we know not to be true. We see it almost on a daily basis with some of the individuals we work with are well, well able to do that, take in what you're telling them, retain it, and more importantly, go and articulate it to... Yeah. Better than some colleagues, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I think we're massively lacking in that across Scotland. Um, peer education for all sorts of different projects. So peer education in uh, Hep C, HIV, Naloxone. Um, and I remember spending a bit of time with um, in Perth when I was over in Australia, and they had an awesome peer education program. Um, where they would get people who were still using drugs going away and doing these interventions with people. And some of the interventions were done while people were in the same room injecting drugs and their peers were able to say, oh, maybe don't do it like that, maybe try this way and stuff. Mm -hmm. So so actually, like, right in the room, injecting with their peers, but also being able to impart some really good harm reduction advice to others as well. So uh, I think we really miss a trick when we don't involve... Um, absolutely, I've all... I've always been a bit envious when you look across Europe and other parts of the world when they have the types of programmes set up that we have nothing like that. And in the UK, when you look to some of the European countries and what they've done is mobilised harm reduction teams or peer teams to work in their community. Because we know they have access in the community, often still live in the community, are credible and there's no barriers to this whole hard to access, hard to yeah, reach yeah. groups. Yeah. They're wearing them every day. <laughs> yeah. it, we can find them within yeah. five minutes. And also we should be paying peers as Absolutely. well. So they do some amazing work in Canada, um, paying peers for their outreach work, harm reduction work, that peer education stuff as well. Just like on a kind of hourly uh, base, however many hours people Definitely can do. Definitely, because so. we do pay people in other fields, certainly know this field. And I think part of that is down to either organisations or alcohol drug partnerships or governments don't want to be seen to pay people in case they use their own drugs. Yeah. However, we'll pay them in vouchers. And that's kind of okay when they can just go in and buy alcohol with that. But we're kind of saying that's okay as long as we don't give you money to buy drugs. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, that, some of that stuff, you know, is about, it's, I suppose it's about not wanting to be seen to be responsible. And so that would be an ethical consideration and all that. But of course, it's not an ethical consideration at all. It's it's just utterly stigmatising. If somebody's determined to buy drugs, as we know, they'll find a way to get money and buy drugs. Um, so people aren't going to do undertake these activities to earn money to buy drugs. And they're not going to not take those drugs because they don't have that money if they if they don't do the work. It's just the ethical thing in it is non-existent. It's actually just about how professionals feel about themselves and about you know, how they might be perceived. Well, you often bring up the example, Jason, imagine you turned up to your work and then at the end of the day, your boss was You were like, presented well without you. <laughs> Thanks yeah. for your time. There's uh, yeah. Tesco yeah. vouchers. And the thing that always amazes me is, so we have all these employment laws in order to protect people and make sure that they're getting their living wage or the minimum. But when it comes to engaging peers and stuff in consultations, and things like that, we still have this standard, give them a £10 voucher, and they've been there three and a half hours, 
or, or whatever. That would be illegal to give somebody £10 for three and a half hours work anywhere else, no? Yeah. So there needs to be, be that equality right across. As much as it's no paid employment you're engaging them in, there needs to be an equality. Much would we pay sessional workers if we asked them to come in and do the same thing. Yeah. And we mentioned there are some of the, the other initiatives that are taking place in, say, in Canada where we're utilising peers. And as you said, they're quite powerful, like mobilising peers um, together. What kind of conditions do you think needed to be in place for that, for that to happen? And what kind of conditions do you think need for that to happen over here? Well, I think one of the things that needs to be in place is the peers who are involved in it know that they're supported in, in the community. And I think over here we're starting to see the beginning of that with the City Centre Engagement Group. And you've been heavily involved in the City Centre. Yeah, Center. yeah. Now we've mentioned the City Centre Engagement Group perhaps in our first podcast episode uh, where we had Garth Mullins come across and he came and visited the City Centre Engagement Group. But first, yeah, could you, could you tell us a little bit about what the City Centre Engagement is? So the City Centre Engagement Group was kind of set up off the back here, I suppose, lots of what we've done, other partners have done through Scotland, and we kind of knew but never ever spoke about the fact that the people who were all always getting engaged in different activities were the people who were stable or abstinent. So we knew there was a gap there to engage the individuals who were currently still using drugs. And we had a discussion within the organisation and then with other partners about what that might look like. And I'd said that I thought it was doable that we could uh, put that together and I knew individuals who I thought would be willing to take part in that. So after lots of different discussions, we decided we would try it. And um, the City Centre Engagement Group is basically we provide a safe space to people who are still actively injecting or using drugs in the city centre. In Glasgow. In I don't Glasgow. even know if we mentioned that. So it is in, ah, yeah. it is in, in Glasgow, Glasgow yeah. yeah. At the moment, it's only in Glasgow, uh, but hopefully it would be rolled out. So what we have running currently is we have two meetings uh, running in Glasgow, one in the Lodging House Mission, which is East Campbell Street, on a Tuesday, and on the alternative Tuesday, we have a meeting running in the Tron Church in Glasgow. People know that as it's Nelson Mandela Square eh, on alternative Tuesdays. So there is no requirements for coming to the group, I suppose, apart from you still need to actively be using drugs. So this is maybe one of the only places in Scotland where if you're stable or abstinent, we kind of don't want to see you. <laughs> yeah. So it's a space just for that group. But so, that's quite a unique criteria, absolutely. isn't it? Because um, like most services uh, or most things, groups, whatever, um, it would be a requirement that you didn't come in if you'd been using drugs or whatever. And this is like the complete opposite. Well, actually, you know, <laughs> you kind of need to you're be... Welcome. Um, yeah, so, and you're welcome. Yeah, you're welcome. One of the beauties about it is we don't have that group running with any agenda. So there's myself, Martin Devine, and Carrie Main who facilitate the Tron group. And we are there literally just as facilitators. So on every fortnight, that group decides what their agendas are going to be. They decide what they would like to talk about how much detail they would like to go into. And then at the end of the meeting, we asked them, what do you want us to feed back to the alcohol-drug partnership? And they'll say, we want you to mention that, we want you to mention that, and that's what we'll do. So we go through a range of different topics. So the main themes, given it's Glasgow, has been HIV, homelessness, housing first, uh, OST is always a constant. Some of that is for the positive, some of it is in the negative. And that would be opioid substitution yeah. treatment? Yeah, so people talking a lot about uh, what they're prescribed, um, some of the issues they have 
getting uh, getting increased some of the issues they have getting it decreased some of the issues they have with the care managers stuff like that the thing that we done at the very start is the first thing we said to people is this isn't a group to just come and criticise everybody so we have a non-written rule if you like at the group that if you identify a problem the group discuss it and try and leave with a solution so that we're not just going away saying they're rubbish they're rubbish they don't they if, if that's going to come up, we want to actually be able to feed that back to the Alcohol Drug Partnership and say, this isn't working. However, the group said, if you've done this... Yeah, and this is what the group might, thinks would improve aye. the situation for them. No, I think that's a really good element of it. Because you don't want it to be... like You want people to be thinking about solutions and um, actions that could be taken to improve things. Aye, absolutely. And the beauty is, we set it up, we have had some people it's been consistent so it's only been up and running for 14 months now but we've had people who who are still attending who attended the first group and what we realized we having the individuals and they wouldn't identify this ourselves but when they were chatting about it i, I spoke to them and mentioned that was Prior to them coming to the group, the night previous, this couple especially um, had told us that what they actually do is uh, the night previous they spend about three hours discussing what happened at the previous group and what they'd like to discuss at this group and then they come with a wee note and I said, so you have a planning meeting? And they said, no, no, we just talk about what we're going to talk about at the group. So, but that is what, what they're doing. I remember when you told me about that the other week, and that's just so exciting for me to think that that kind of organising is starting to take place. I think it's so impressive that there's people that have been coming there for the full duration of the group. It just shows you that people are obviously getting something out of it. And you were also saying that... Um, and also, of course, they're organising the day before. I think that's just fantastic, coming with a, coming with a plan for you, um, for the group. But you also, before the meeting, you try and recruit new members as well. So Yeah, yeah. So part of what, what we've always done with the, the Tron group is, so we have your core members, if you like, and there's maybe about five or six of them, and sometimes they'll no come for... A, a group, they'll miss a group here and there, but every second week, about an hour and a half prior to the group starting, so it starts at half two, about one o'clock, myself and Martin uh, Divine usually go out and we do a wee sweep of the whole city centre from the top to the bottom, and what we do is just chat to everybody we pass, we go and hit some of the wee haunts where we know people will be, be hanging about, run at the Marie Trust and all that type of stuff. And we just have a wee five minute chat with them. If they've never been to the group, we'll tell them what it is we're, we're uh, doing, where it is, we're opened at half two, come up, you'll get your lunch, all that sort of stuff. And Almost every time we go, we get new people. And it seems like the location is really important for that fact that you know you're going out um, within the city centre. You're finding people mm -hmm. uh, who, who are actively uh, around and about that day. So it seems like location seems really Lo important. location is is key because it's somewhere that everybody's familiar with. So the Tron Church have a pay it forward scheme for the homeless, so people are able to go in there. Uh, every day or certainly Monday to Friday and get soup and a sandwich and tea and coffee. So they're already familiar with, with, with that venue. However, we do get some people who attend the Lodging House Mission Group and the Tuesday that that's no on, they come down to the Tron. All right. Aye. So the most important thing I think the group's done is and this comes for the members of the group, is it's gave them a place where they feel welcome with no conditions attached. And there, there has been wee bits of progress, so we told them as well that 
these changes won't happen overnight. But they have seen wee bits of progress for they've been coming. So they, they value it because they know that it's not just something we get you in to talk about and we'll never come and see you again. They're getting constant feedback. We fed this back, here's what we got told, here's what the plan is. And through some of the issues they raised, we've been able to invite some uh, professionals all, along to the group, like Sackett, Priya, Darcy and stuff, because they had issues with the opiate replacement treatment. So Sackett kindly came along, met both groups. They launched lots of questions at them and he answered them the best he could and what he couldn't answer. He said, I'll go back, check that out, feed it back. We're going to have Jim McBride coming along, the head adult services and stuff. Uh, possibly um, the super uh, police superintendent, Gary Ianson, who's responsible for the city centre. Uh, policing is going to visit the group as well. And that happens, but you have a discussion with the group beforehand, don't you? Yeah. And then they approve whether... Yeah. So if anybody wants to... So it's not the type of group where... Because you know what... Um, because this group's taking place, a lot of services want to tap into that. Oh, can we come along and speak? Can yeah. we come along and speak? But you've got a process for yeah. how you manage that. So one of the things that we felt important when we were setting it up was that this group just never became a group that people almost used for their own benefit because they needed uh, service user involvement or lived a living experience uh, consultation. So yeah. what, what, what we done was we introduced something that um, had been used in uh, other countries and it was simply a rule that if you want to visit the group as a professional, you give them two weeks notice and you, you, you inform the group of who you are, what your role is, the topic you want to discuss. They will then discuss that within the group and they, the group will make the decision whether you come or no. So we'll no mention names. People have asked to come and the group's decided that they, after discussing it, they didn't want them to come. So we just say the individual group's decided that they, at this point they don't want to speak to you. So actually, the evidence is that you've got a whole load of demand from professionals to engage with the group. So that traditional thing that, oh, we can't talk to these people or we don't know how to, is actually, if someone else can do it and do it well in terms of engaging, getting, getting people together, then actually there's a huge demand to speak to them. It's just that traditionally, health boards or whatever haven't been able to think of a, a methodology or a... Or a structure that would support people's participation. Absolutely, mm -hmm. so there's, this, there's always been this discussion about hard to reach groups and hard to engage and all oh, this. And what the City Centre Engagement Group actually demonstrates is it isn't hard at all. It can be done, we've been doing it for 14 months. Um, some of the individuals that come to the group might not necessarily have done that if it was a service they were going to visit. But they come to the group because they're made welcome. There's no conditions put upon them. If they're under the influence or they are under the influence, they don't get asked to leave. The people facilitating the group are experienced enough that will take care of people and make sure they're okay. And if there's been no issues whatsoever with people uh, when we were initially setting this up, one of the things that somebody asked me was, what, you're going to invite people who are still using drugs to a group? What if they overdose? I says, well, thankfully I know a bit about naloxone, <laughs> so they'll be okay. Yeah. So, sarcastically, sometime I'll say when I'm getting updates that the group's gone well, this many people are attending, and nobody's died. Yeah. So what it demonstrates is, actually, some of the most chaotic people who are in the city centre injecting on a daily basis. Some of them are individuals who have recently acquired HIV and stuff. They are some of the uh, most consistent attenders at the group. Mm -hmm. And they are, are some of the bigger voices, if you like, who take a real active part. And it's been nice to watch because what... What you've seen over the last nine months maybe is this group are new jail in the girl and 
it's nice to watch, but maybe for services it isn't. They're the only solely reliant on services. So people come to the group and have an issue with housing or whatever, and it's other members of the group that say, oh, I know where you need to go for that. I'll take you down. I've been there. Whereas in the past it might have been off on the Simon community or this person. So they're actually taking care of each other. Yeah, so it's almost providing agency to, to people, as we say, as our theme. To each other. It's a double-edged sword but because... It's lovely to watch, but when that's happening at the back of my mind, I'm saying to myself, why is this happening? Because we have like eight outreach teams in Glasgow City Centre. How are these individuals getting missed with these services and outreach teams to the point that they're having to rely on each other to support yeah. them to govern the law centre? And I think that's really good feedback. So you and I both sit on the... There's a, also a city centre harm reduction action group that meets monthly. And I think that sort of feedback from the city centre engagement group is essential for the harm reduction action group to know about. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we've got all these uh, outreach teams, we've got these services, but we're not getting the message down to what, what people who are in the city centre all the time are saying is that they don't know about these services. So we need to, that's a good route to feed that back in so that we can change things a bit and make sure that uh, those services are aware that actually that your key target group are actually not uh, not aware of you. So, so we need to know. And We'll ask the group for time to time, almost every couple of months, how do you think the group's gone, how do we develop it? And probably one of the best suggestions they've come up with so far is we were asking them about, so when we're giving them updates about HIV, drug-related deaths, naloxone, B, uh, BBV test and all that sort of stuff, we were saying, how do we do that better? And a couple of the members of the group were saying, well, if you provided us with these wee £10 phones, that would be excellent because we can't do nothing with them. You can't pawn them or sell them or anything like that. They said, <laughs> but, drugs with them. <laughs> they said, but if you provided us with this, they said that would be excellent because then you could just get text or the updates and stuff and we could update people. So that's something that um, the management group for the city centre engagement group is looking at Great. how how do we go about that and um, because they are actually they're calling them the ten pound phones but you can get them for like three pounds now and you need to just buy a sim with so many minutes mm -hmm. but it's how would the logistics of that actually work. Because who are all the organisations Jason that so are involved uh, in supporting the group? Scottish Drugs Forum, Waverley Care. Uh, the ADP are part of the management team. They they kindly uh, provide us with the money. So we, what I never mentioned is everybody attends, we buy them a hot meal, whether that's soup and a lunch and a coffee, whatever. The ADP, Turning Point Scotland. Um, we have some, Carrie and Ashley, who are uh, employed by the council in social care roles. And uh, we're looking for some other organisations who might be coming on board, supported obviously by the Tron Church and Lodge and House Mission, who kindly provide us the venues. Yeah. And you you mentioned a few other names, just uh, Martin Divine, so Martin. Martin's Turning Point, Scotland. He's Turning Point. Yeah. And you're also talking about um, Dr. Sakit Priyadarshi as well, who yeah. had visited the group. So just, you know, people out with, I mean, yeah. I think everybody in Scotland knows who Sakit is, of but course, um, for, right. for people who are not listening, so Sakit's the. Uh, lead for the addiction service, yeah. a clinical lead for the addiction services and, yeah. and GGC, Creative mm -hmm. Glasgow and Clyde. What you're describing, the two things, that I, I, I don't work with this group at all, so it's, this is just observation from afar, I suppose, but the two things that are interesting compared to other approaches that have, been, have existed or have existed in the past is this work doesn't really belong to anybody. It's not like people say, oh, this is Turning Points Group or SDF's group. There seems to be a, a recognition just in the way it's referred to as it's the group exists. And, group. and no one really thinks about, mm -hmm. 
you know, those kind of technicalities. And, and, and the other thing is, and I know you're not only not fishing for compliments, but don't like compliment, compliments or flattery or anything that sounds remotely like that, but it's, it's that, those relationships about the people that are attending or with those, those people that are attending that are crucial. So, because that has to be trusting because that's why people haven't engaged. It's, it's maybe why people haven't engaged with services that might benefit them in terms of treatment or whatever, but it's why people haven't engaged in these kind of uh, activities. Although we think of them as empowering activities, there's no, there's no general recognition that, oh, that would be empowering for me. People go along and saying, sometimes quite tentatively and with some element of suspicion thing, oh, what's this about? I've been through this kind of experience before and it wasn't good, but I'll try it again. So it's how do you engage people initially in that sweep you're talking about in the city centre? Yeah, it takes and, a certain type people. of yeah. personality yeah. and credibility to be able to go up and approach people on the street that you've maybe never spoken to before that then would come along to your group. So I think that's a crucial element of it is getting the right people um, to, to facilitate the group because you don't do a lot at the group, do you? You just like facilitate we're, their we're discussions. We're just there to, to kind of keep it keep it rolling on and maybe answer some questions yeah. that they have or uh, we made we made it very clear and we set it up that this isn't a support group. So I suppose some of the challenges in the initial stages for the staff was remembering it's not a support mm -hmm. group. So when people are coming for issues, staff are like, right, I'll phone there for you. I'll and we I were can having save you. a, <laughs> I, we are not a support group. What we do is we signpost them to the most appropriate people based on our knowledge and understanding of what's about. Know what I mean? But it's very much, it's, it's their group. And what I never mentioned there was when we agreed to try this and put it together, we all we almost agreed the end stage before we even agreed the beginning and that was that we something like this what we would do is we would be involved, we would set it up and we would develop the individuals within that all we are purpose and this was agreed with the ADP in Glasgow, all with the purpose of them advocating for themselves at ADP meetings and taking away that whole, I'm going to go and talk on behalf of them. So I suppose what we've been able to do over the last 14 months was demonstrate that they're able to talk on behalf of themselves. They don't actually need us. So let's just get a wee bit more development done and then let them go and speak for themselves. And you were attending a co-production meeting the other day with uh, with two individuals, one yes. uh, being Martin, who uh, another Martin, not Martin Devine, no, no. Martin that attends the City Centre Engagement Group, and uh, and he has been there right from the He's start. He's been for the very start, so Martin was probably one of the first people we went to. What we'd done before we set the meeting up again was that wee bit of preparation. So I spent a couple of weeks out in the city centre, trying to recruit people. That in itself was a challenge. Quite a lot of people initially said to me, nah, I'm no interested when I said, why is that? And they said, come on, whoever wants to hear for us, it'll just be one of the groups that you come along and nobody listen. And I was kind of, no, I promise you, this won't be the same, it'll be something. So Martin was one of the people I initially first convinced of that. And then... I was able to convince others and then almost use Martin as an example. Look, do you think he'd be coming along if he didn't believe it? Wouldn't people are like, I'll see what it's like and stuff, so. Well, we were fortunate to sit down with Martin and also Matthew, who's a current volunteer with yep, us. Yep. And both of them attended the meeting and they were speaking about their experiences um, of, of, of using substances and all the related issues that kind of come with that. Um, so, should we have a little listen to that now? Yeah. yeah. Martin, you uh, regularly attend the, the City Centre Engagement yeah. Group. So, what made you what made you go along to it in the first place? Um, I was kind of introduced to it by, by Jason. Um, I spoke to him about it and he told me about it uh, one day when I was in the City Centre. Uh, and I thought, I didn't even really know what, what if it would change anything, but I thought I'd go along and really have have a look and see, you know, what was what, and, and quite quickly realised that I quite enjoyed 
opinion. It was like uh, having my voice heard and being able to get my opinion across to, to, to people and, you know, the thought that that might actually change something along the line for the better as well, for not just me but for other people. Um, so I, yeah. Excellent. And how, how did you find about it in the first place? Was it was it, it was it Jason? Just through kind yeah. of word of mouth, yeah. Right. It was Jason and, and I think someone one of our staff um, um, told me that it was on, told me what time it was on, and I think, um, yeah, excellent. I enjoyed it. Cool. And so what do you get out of out of going along? Um, well, we kind of go along there. Um, we sit down as a group um, and we discuss kind of what issues people have got. It could be buried, it could be homelessness, it could be addiction, it could be um, you know, you're having problems with, with, with homelessness services or, or addiction services and usually what you find is you identify with people there. So you'll find out that you know, maybe one person will say they've got a problem with something and another person will identify with that and say, yeah, well, I can identify with that and that's going on with me as well. What also happened is sometimes you'll get visitors in from from, from different organisations, obviously with the permission of the guys of the group. Um, you know, and that's a really, I mean, that's a really positive thing because these, these guys are, are kind of, a lot of them are quite high up. One of them was a doctor the other week who was quite high up in the addiction services who came in and was kind of listening to a lot of the guys' opinions in the group, and especially about um, ORT and stuff like that, um, opiate replacement therapy. Um, and kind of how it's distributed and how it's, it's used within the community. So um, he got he he learned things there that, that he didn't know himself. You know what was going on. Yeah, it was quite surprised by a lot of the stuff that it's a lot of the feedback he was getting from the people in the group. So yeah. And I suppose that, that that's a good a good point there about about the fact that you know you guys are going along and providing a lot of inf- information and you know that they're learning a lot of it, of it as well. You know, and so so it's helping everybody um, that's involved that's going along to to the group, which is great. You guys are kind of taking on the control of the group now. How does how does that feel from the start of, of when you first went along to kind of like moving in maybe a few weeks in or a few months in when the responsibilities kind of come across to you guys now and 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 like how has that how has that power shift kind of felt? Yeah, at first it felt kind of strange because you're not used to that kind of um, being in a position, usually, you know, if you're involved in, in services, you're usually being told what other people's opinions are and, and, and you know, this is what's going to happen with you. Whereas, you know, actually being in a group where your opinion actually matters and you're actually controlling the group, you're actually controlling that group rather than another. Uh, at the start, it can be quite strange, it can be quite new, um, but it also is really, really refreshing as well. Um, you know, to be part of something that, where your voice has been heard and your, your opinion matters, you know. Um, it's, a, it's a great group, I can't, you know, can't speak highly enough of that, you know. And, uh, and Jason also just mentioned there about Garth, hey, well, not, not Garth, but, but Van Du, and Van Du is uh, the Vancouver network of drug users, that's the one, um, and Garth Mullins, who came across uh, for our uh, August conference and who's also in our first podcast episode, uh, he also came along to the City Centre Engagement Group uh, and he spoke to you guys. Um, how was that event when when you were there? And, and I know Matthew, you also saw Garth at his workshop. Both of you guys yeah. were at the workshop at the yeah. conference uh, on drug user activism. So f- first of all, Martin with the Six Centre Engagement Group. How was that when when Garth came there? And what kind of things did you guys discuss? It was great um, because we kind of found out. You know, sometimes you can feel that, especially if in a, if in, if in Glasgow, you can feel addiction just kind of central to you would say. And then you've got someone like Garth coming over from Canada with different ideas, especially as they've had like a service users um, group running for quite a while now. And, uh, they've got a podcast going and, you know, they were able to come over and give us some ideas on, on how to do stuff, you know. Um, and he, he was also able to take away some ideas from us for his stuff as well over there. Um, you know, so, yeah, it was really good listening to, to <laughs> something for the other side of the world, I suppose. It was, you know, and it was saying, you know, this is how it is over here, but you know we'll get the one thing in common, and yet we've got that pro- common addiction problem. You know, maybe you know. So yeah, it was quite, it was quite good to hear. You know that, you know that how our group's been running for a, for a while now, and how it's been, it's been going. It gave your group a kind of wee, you know, kind of boost because it was like, no, this can be done. You know, we can take this ourselves at some point and run with it because that's the end goal. It's, it's obviously for. The, the group users to run the group themselves, Jason said. 
and then when I eventually that will be the case where there'll be somebody within the group kind of um, steering the group or whatever, or helping help to, to, yeah, so let us know that that was, Gareth let us know that that was possible, you know, it was achievable, uh, and it was achieve, it was also achievable to get change through groups like that as well as they've had changing and stuff and, and affected change in their own country through different stuff, so yeah, it was, it was really good to have them over. And uh, and both you guys were at the the uh, the conference where he, d- he delivered the workshop on yeah. specifically on drug user activism. How do you what, what did you describe it? it was how, how to how to start a, a a drug user union or, or yeah, how to start a drug users union? Basically, getting organised and looking after specifically drug users' interests because it's he explained that no one else was looking after those interests and when they first held the meeting or when they first decided to hold the meeting in the park, they made a list of all the things that they wanted changed or they wanted something done about, and and they went from there. Uh, basically, um, becoming organised and, and different people doing different things, you know what I mean? I was fascinated by Garth, uh, the fact that he was a an ex-drug user, somebody who was on a prescription, had come over from Canada, do you know what I mean? Had been invited over from Canada to come and give his opinion on a group that was specifically for drug users and their interests. I was fascinated by that. Uh, so I listened quite closely to what he said and, and watched him quite closely as well and I was amazed. Actually, what what was the what was the energy in the room at the at the time as well? I've heard it was quite electric. It was quite yeah, it was quite uh, excitable, uh, really, especially the way he engaged with the uh, other <laughs> other drug users who were in the room. You know what I mean? And, and once he 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 made it clear to them that it was their voice he was interested in, they they gave him it. You know what I mean? Um, I found it inspiring because, you know, I'm presently on a prescription for ORT and the fact that he was there delivering that whilst on a prescription meant a a bit to me, you know what I mean? Because I can sometimes uh, believe that um, my opinion is not worthwhile or I've got nothing to say because of, because of ORT or because I'm on a prescription or because I've used drugs. Even though, you know, the SDF is a place where my experience has some value, it, it's still inspiring to watch somebody come all the way over from Canada, you know, with his friends and, and talk to a room full of service, drug service professionals on how to set up a group for drug users and their rights, you know what I mean? And do you guys think that this is something that can happen, will happen, should happen in Glasgow? What What are the next steps that kind of need to take place for that? To, for you think for that to happen? I think one of the important things certainly I learnt with Faye Garth's visit was in speaking to him after he'd attended the City Centre Engagement Group and delivered the workshop and stuff, he, he was actually talking about what we have in uh, Vancouver, Jason, known as Van Do. He says, you already have that here. That's what the City Centre Engagement Group is. That's the beginning of what Van Do done. We got a group of people together and started asking, what is the issues for you? He says, you might not feel like it's a drug user union or whatever. He says, but that is the beginning. And for me, it's about how do we take that to the next level. I think for the City Centre Engagement Group, we've looked at a whole host of things, Andy, have been raised over the time that I've mentioned. Uh, but something that came through really clearly the last couple of meetings, and it got me thinking, given the previous work I'd done, was um, when we were chatting, it became apparent that all, everybody in the group had experienced multiple drug-related deaths, whether that was family members, very close friends, acquaintances. And what we actually got into talking about was how the trauma that 
then affects people and some people were talking about when such and such died I, I've started to use more and more and more and it got, got me thinking about uh, which was raised by the members of the group where is your access to counselling because mm -hmm. if we're not going to your traditional services how do we get access to grief counselling or mm -hmm. whatever it may be and it, and, and it got me thinking and I couldn't come up with an answer. Mm. I don't know where their access is. I, I know there's sometimes this belief that if you're still actively using drugs, you shouldn't be going into counselling mm. because it might uncover mm. uh, stuff of your past and whatever. But surely if people are identifying this as a big issue, mm. the amount of people are dying and stuff, mm. we should be responding to it. Absolutely. And so this sounds like yeah, perhaps yeah. a... a, a a focus perhaps of of, uh, of the group maybe if this is something that's being recognised and being something that's being uh, highlighted if you were to say to someone who'd never been along to the group before uh, who you think would benefit from it what would you say to them? Um, I would say go along your voice will be heard you know you'll be valued um, you know and you'll be treated with respect and dignity um, and that's something that anybody wants I think especially when you're in addiction or homelessness, a lot of the time you don't feel like you're being treated with respect or dignity is when the community you feel like you're, you're looked down upon or you're, you're judged. You know, in that group you don't feel like you're looked down upon, you don't feel like you're judged because it's all people within the same situation as yourself. So, you know, I would say go along, get your voice heard and kind of, you know, if, if you want to make some positive change, you know, within yourself but within your community as well and kind of then go along, you know, get your voice heard and make a difference. So that was Martin and Matthew there, who we were just talking to the other day. Um, some really, really interesting points that, that both of them were making. Um, so, I, I, you know, I just want to pick up a little bit on just, you know, especially um, uh, Matthew's point where, where he was mentioning about, you know, sometimes I feel like my opinion um, isn't valid just because I'm, I'm, I'm on... Um, I'm on a prescription or because I've got a history of substance use and uh, you know I suppose that just shows the value of, of involving people empowering people um, you know hearing the, their voices and making them, them know that um, you know people do want to listen to them yeah I mean, I, it, it seems to me in that case <clears throat> we was talking about it but you can see that shift in people where I mean, it, it's not grandiose to call it empowerment people are actually empowered by it they, they, they realise that they actually have agency as you say and it, it they have the potential to have control over a lot of things that they feel powerless about. <coughs> uh, and that's, of course, their own treatment, if that's what, what uh, th their thing, is it where? But actually, it's just the whole aspects of people's lives and the ability to influence the development of services and the competence of services and to hold people account who, who are empowered at the moment. And all of that's there. And what's interesting is actually the simple things is just about a relationship or a bit of inspiration from somebody who's in a similar situation to yourself who's out there doing it that makes a difference. It's not somebody, it's not huge investment or a massive change in the way things are done or finding a way of getting people around the health boards, uh, board of directors or whatever to do a presentation. It's actually just about a, a relationship and somebody. It's that thing about being treated with respect and somebody listening to you or something, you know, it's, people's demands aren't complicated. I think Martin rounded it up beautifully there, didn't he? That the one of the reasons he comes to sit centre engagement group is because he gets treated with dignity and respect. Something that everybody wants. And I think that's key. That that doesn't take funding or anything like this or any massive changes that that can happen for each individual to start to treat people with a bit of dignity and respect no matter where they're at. Even if they're on uh, ORT and they're still topping up or whatever, just give people dignity and respect and that'll be enough for them to keep coming back and working with you and building that relationship. Yeah. That's the first time I've heard that interview, um, so it was really nice to hear their experiences of Garth being here because I think when we first thought about getting Garth over for the conference, um, and talked about having him over for you know a bit longer so that we'd be able to do some more work with him. 
uh, one of my immediate thoughts about what he could do while he was here, and I think I spoke to you at the time, was about uh, city centre attending the city centre engagement group to speak to the guys that were involved in it because I think this is so uh, unusual for people and you hear them talking about it, it's so unusual for them to think that they'll be part of something where their voices could actually be heard. So it was really important for them, I felt, to hear from somebody who had been doing that for a while and had been Garth had been involved in the Van Do stuff. Um, and it sounds like they got a lot out of him being here and that just that kind of boost, uh, as it was described, to... Um, to realise that actually their group could be similar and be doing similar things and achieving similar things. So, uh, yeah, really great to hear their experience of it. I think it's so, a uh, kind of theme I was kind of hearing throughout there and, and, and also thinking about the City Centre Engagement Group is about how important it is to kind of have role models as well and, and, and possible trailblazers almost, um, positive trailblazers, people... Uh, who you can see, you know, what is possible. So Garth coming over here and, and Matthew talking about, you know, you know, he's he's uh, he's he's on a prescription and he's travelling, he's getting asked to go to conferences. And I'm just thinking about, you know, Martin, Martin being at the City Centre Engagement Room, you're saying at the very start, you know, how difficult it was to get people to come along, but then you got Martin there and then others are saying, well, if Martin's going along and he's sticking in with it, then do you know what? And, it, and it's all about showing what's possible, you know, and I think, I suppose that's a bigger aspect of stigma within society where people think that maybe there isn't the, the opportunity and often there isn't the opportunity but but there isn't um that uh, opportunity to um i don't know to to excel to uh, get better because they've been told perhaps throughout their life or maybe by themselves perhaps you know that no I'll, you know who wants to listen to me you know so so it's really important that we provide those, those avenues it's, it's not even that they've necessarily been told that that's the reality that's what's happened to them throughout their life, uh, using drugs or an addiction, stuff like that. So what we were introducing to people was a total alien concept. But So you mean I could go and smoke a bit of heroin, cocaine, inject it, and then come into your group? Aye. But no, no, I'll not get put out. That's a total alien concept yeah. uh, to people. So it was, it was mere that hearts and minds stuff, if you like, uh, this isn't just a one-off and we're not just bringing you along and we'll say, what do you think about this, 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 see you later? Because people have absolutely no experience of being welcomed into something like And I think that. people really need to hear that because that bit where Matthew was talking about, um, he never, he felt like it was so inspiring, Garth being here and being on a script because he never felt like he's, his voice could be valued in that same type of way. Uh, it got me a bit emotional because it's it, that is quite emotive for somebody saying that. It's just kind of gives you a wee bit of a pain in your heart thinking that that's how people feel like that there's no point in them speaking up about anything that directly affects their lives because yeah. it'll just not be heard. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that too. And it, it, so it's not just about, oh, you know, he set up a group, but we could do the same. It's actually a whole transformation how you think, your whole self-regard, how you, how you regard yourself and your, the way you might be viewed by other, other people. Um, because we, we have a lot of volunteers who, who actually, you know, when you talk, talk to them, they, they're actually in that position. And yet the perverse thing is that they're valued volunteers in here and they've got a unique insight and they're contributing and all the rest of it. And you think, well, of course you're well regarded in here, but you've, you've actually got to constantly prove that because you're fighting against that whole internal voice of people who, mm -hmm. as you say, that, that's what they know is to be disempowered. And, um, you know, and a lot of that's perpetuated by the way we've, we've done things and things that have been good for other groups, including people who identify as being in recovery and people who are absent and so on, you know, who are referred to as doing well or graduates of programmes and all that sense of journeys and progressions and all that. So if you're not on that journey or you're further behind in that journey or whatever, if we're going to use that metaphor, then how do you, how do you think of yourself? It's massively disempowering. So, so some of that stuff that we've just been talking about has just reminded me of a couple of examples and I think... Um, when we think about people who use drugs not having their voice heard, that also links into how they uh, access services. And it, it really reminds me of a guy that I worked with when I was uh, uh, working for a drug treatment service. I was trying to encourage him to go to his GP for some physical health stuff that he had going on. And his response to me was, Kirsten, if I go to the GP with my head under my arm, he'll ask me if I want a plaster. And it's just about people feeling like they're not going to be taken seriously or that they are going to be seen as drug seeking or whatever. And 
I recently spoke at the public health conference and made the point that you know, we, we see some really significant injection-related wounds that people are experiencing on a day-to-day basis, but often don't see them in services until it's at the point where, like, they're about to lose their leg. Um, and why is it that people will uh, experience and endure such significant pain before they will actually go to one-hour services? So it's, it all links into that whole thing about people's voice not being heard, and I think it's a message to all of us to, you know, to listen to what's been said through, throughout their experiences and to make a much better effort in all of our services and all of the work we do to make sure that we are actually listening to voices and taking those voices on board. Absolutely, and it's like, we know that one of the reasons we set this up is because the voices are not heard. And for myself, and this is just a personal thing, I'm always very conscious that I no longer live that type of life and I've been in my choice abstinent recovery for a long time. But I think my responsibility is not to forget the people who are not where I'm at. And I have the ability and the the chances to advocate on these individuals' behalfs. And I think that's something that we should all be doing, uh, especially if you're in recovery, because I choose to live my life absent recovery. doesn't mean I should only be promoting abstinence to people. It's about promoting choice to people and giving people that opportunity to move whenever the time's right for them for that chaos and a bit of stabilisation, maybe a long-term abstinence. Most of the people I come across and they work with, their aspiration is someday not to be using drugs. It's just no tomorrow or next week or next year. Doesn't mean they shouldn't be supported and have their voice heard any more or any less than somebody whose aspiration is to be absent next mm. week or mm. next month. Yeah, I mean, that's... That's an interesting way of putting it. It's, a, it's an insight for me because what you're saying is that we shouldn't be advocating abstinence for, for people. We should be advocating what people get from abstinence, which is a sense of dignity and being treated by respect, with, with respect. And people get that because they are abstinent and that, that's part of the joy of being abstinent. But actually, we can give that to people who aren't abstinent. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Well, there's a lot of themes there that we've, we've covered uh, that I'm sure we could go into much more detail in the future, and I'm sure we will, because this will not be the only time that Jason will join us on the podcast, and I'm sure there'll be many other topics in the future. This could have been an all-day episode. Exactly, exactly, <laughs> but I'm sure the attention span of all our listeners will... Well, I don't know, to... I think there's a few geeks like well, us that would like... Well, that's true, Well, they can come join us sometime for another podcast. Um, so, thanks very much for, for joining us today, Jason. I really appreciate... Um, you uh, taking the time to, to come and help us out um, with us today and also for, for uh, chatting to, to Martin and Matthew the other day. And just also another little point as well, if people are interested in the City Centre Engagement Group in Glasgow, how do they find out more about that? And, you know, so there might be some staff working in services in the area that could promote it to people mm-hmm. who they see or there might be some people who use drugs listening to the podcast. Definitely. So the easiest way probably for people would be to either email the SDF uh, or phone the SDF and we could get all that information uh, to them. So I think it's just uh, SDF at inquiries at sdf.org.uk, which is the email address. Excellent, perfect. So um, if you liked the podcast, um, this podcast episode, subscribe, share it with your friends, leave us a rating. Um, you can also get in touch with any comments or questions uh, for the show that you'd like us to discuss or think about on or off air. Uh, and you can send them through to andyc at sdf.org.uk. You can also uh, post any comments online using the hashtag DrugsUncut. So until next time, thanks very much for joining us and we'll see you then.